welcome to episode 14 of Poetry Worth Hearing, hosted by me, Kathleen McPhillamy, and with music by Alex Heen. This episode focuses on poetry and work. Most poets spend most of their lives working at jobs which are not poetry. Even those who are employed in poetry-related fields find themselves involved in administration, teaching, pitching for funds, and so on. Yet, surprisingly little is written about work in contrast to all the poems which have been written about nature, love, death, etc. In this episode, we have an interview with Elsa Pedler, a poet and a vet, who talks about how her two vocations have fed into each other. She also gives us a reading of some of her poems. Then we have a wide range of work-related poems. Some poets, like Ilsa, write directly about the work they do. Some write about the work of others. Some write about the conditions that go alongside work, such as the commute or office relationships. Poets featured include Meg Barton, Sarah J. Bryson, David Burridge, Dinah Livingstone, Roddy Maud Roxby, Helen Overall, Philip Polikoff, Jane Thomas, Carl Tomlinson, Sarah Watkinson, Merrin Williams, Pat Winslow, and Stephen Wren. Peddler talking about her career as a poet and a vet. So I think I first got into poetry when I was at school and I know a lot of people have had bad experiences with with learning poetry at school and have been put off it but for me it was a really positive experience and I think studying for O-level English literature it was the first time that I really understood the power of words and particularly in poetry, that a word could hold a meaning but could also have a different meaning if you put it together with other words and how you can create images in the mind. And I think then I realised how powerful literature could be, and in particular poetry, and I became hooked and wanted to try it for myself. Matrabandu put it more eloquently, the great power of poetry is in its resonance. Poems resonate out from the words used in some deeper and richer meaning, So when Robert Frost finishes his famous poem, Stopping by the Wood on a Snowy Evening, with the repeated, and miles to go before I sleep, we all know that the first time means I've got a long way to go before I go to bed. But the second time, that something universal is being expressed about what it is to be alive. This poem resonates and you feel something larger being apprehended, even if you can't say exactly what it is. And I think that really clicked with me when I was studying O-levels. And the poets that I studied were... Larkin and Ted Hughes, and just uh, realising for the first time what a powerful thing a poem could be. I wrote poetry, uh, poems of a sort, I guess, right from when I was then 13 or 14. I never had any of those early poems published. And, you know, you look back on them now and you think, oh, that's a bit of teenage angst, maybe. But I think it was a powerful way of expressing feelings and emotions that I was going through as a teenager as well. Then I uh, went to university and uh, went to vet school and kind of life got in the way 
and I had a family and, and owned a business and, you know, it was a really, really busy time. And I think I got to about 45 and I kept writing these poems down on bits of paper and I thought, do you know, I, re- I really, if I'm going to do this, I really ought to do it properly. So I went on an Arbonne Foundation course and it was just absolutely life-changing, really. It was completely mind-blowing and the tutors were so uh, supportive and enthusiastic and you kind of accepted me as somebody that writes poetry. I think I came back from that um, week absolutely enthused and also realising that you have to work at it as well. You, you can't just write a few lines down and call it a poem. You have to really work at it. So then I started really taking poetry seriously and joined a poetry group and started reading more. And And I suppose the things that I wrote about were the things that I knew. So I knew about animals. I knew about working as a vet. And so I suppose it was just natural for me to think, well, that's what I'll write poems about. I'm trying to make sense of, of my life as a vet and the things that I was encountering on, on an everyday basis, what I was seeing in the consulting room and the operating theatre. I read Larkin and Hughes more widely. So I, I then read all their work and, and Alden and Gerard Manley Hopkins was a phase as well. But then I started, I was introduced to more modern poets at that course. So Les Murray was one and his, he has a wonderful series of animal poems where he speaks from the voice of the animal. I think there's a a cow one, isn't it? Where he where he calls them me, and all me are this, and all me are feeling this, because because he believes that the cow is a herd animal, so it's like a collective conscious. Seamus Heaney and Don Patterson and Liz Berry, who's who I still love. I think her poems are so wonderful. The more you read, the more you're introduced to other other poets, aren't you? And um, then reading poetry magazines and seeing newer poets come through. So I think the poets that I admire now, or the poets that I go back to, I guess, would still be Liz Berry and then going on to Kim Moore, who's a wonderful Cumbrian poet. But other poets that have become more prominent just in the last few years, um, Jane Byrne has just got out this fantastic uh, first collection, Be Feared. I'm really fortunate to be part of a poetry group called the 57 Collective. And that was started by Alice Willits in Cambridge. And she invited a group of poets and we meet up once a month on Zoom to do a workshop. And there's people like Chaucer Cameron, uh, Jess Mukherjee, Cheryl Mokovitz, Elvia Roberts, uh, and se- several other people. And just reading their work is mm-hmm. amazing. There's Stav Polleg, who is also lives in Cambridge. She writes the most amazing cinematic sort of filmic poems which are full of these beautiful images often about the city or painters so just reading widely I think is really important being introduced to new poets in poetry magazines I really love the Rialto I read that one um, very regularly Magma is is also brilliant but there's just so many aren't there Finnish Creatures, Butcher's Dog (laughs) if I read you one of Jane Burns uh, she's the most amazing person and she has a, a wonderful reading style as well. I was fortunate to hear her read at the Kendall Poetry Festival last year. And she has such a love of words, love of language and the way she uses words. So this one is Triolet for Easter and the icon I have made of a wizened rabbit's pelt. And she explained that it, she, on her daily walk, saw this dead rabbit and for most of us it would be you know a, a put off and uh, but she felt drawn to it and kept going back to it and this is the the poem that came out of it 
This journey around your folded bones, your mess of meagre limbs, becomes a necessary crusade. Each day I must repair your psalter of wounds, rotate you so that each eye has equal sight of the sky's smolt scrim. This journey around your folded bones, your mess of meagre limbs, ends with my kneeling at your reliquary of grass. The parchment of your skin waits like a page to be written with colours of God. Once blood bloomed and made its journey around your folded bones. Your mess of meagre limbs becomes a necessary crusade each day. I must repair your psalter of wounds. I know a lot of people feel very conflicted about their work and the, the time it takes up in their lives. But I think most veterinary surgeons maybe will have chosen a career because of an emotional connection or empathy with a particular animal at some point in their early life. And so I think there's a sort of almost a deeper connection before it, it starts with a vet. And I think it, it becomes a vocation rather than a than a job. And I think being a vet is so tied up with who I am and what I do that it's almost it's so difficult to separate it, really. So I can't really separate my job from who I am. And it is all encompassing, really. And certainly 30 years ago when I first qualified, it, it certainly was. You, you were part of the community, you know, the farmers invited you in for, you know, breakfast, cup of tea and you know, you'd you see people in the supermarket and they chat about their animals. So you were never not a vet, if you see what, if that makes sense. So, yeah, it's so bound up with, with who, I, who I am, who I was, that I felt I wished I had a little bit more time. And I would often feel a little bit frustrated that I didn't have enough time to write. But then I think if you need to write, you'll, you'll just write in some way. And I remember on pulling up in a lay-by in my car on the way to a visit and finding a scrap of paper and scribbling some lines of a poem on a scrap of paper because they'd just come to me in the, in the car. And there's one poem, actually, that was in my uh, the pamphlet that is about operating on a dog that uh, was involved in a road accident, had a ruptured diaphragm, and I had to repair this ruptured diaphragm. And it was actually seeing the heart through the remnants of the diaphragm. And I was, as I was stitching it up, it's not to say I wasn't concentrating on the job in hand, but as I was stitching it up, I was saying, I was just thinking how amazing this it was to see this heart beating in the chest cavity, and that how many people are, are privileged enough to see that in in real life. And so, some lines of a poem actually came to me while I was doing that surgery. And as soon as I finished the surgery, I came out of the operating theatre found the back of a consent form, I think, and scribbled on the back of the consent form this little lines of poetry that had come into my head during the operation and then had to stop and obviously do the clinical notes in the aftercare. <laughs> I think, was it Larkin that said, I, I, I write to preserve what I've thought, felt or seen? And I think for me that's true. I write about what I know and what I do and incidents that have affected me. But I think I also write to make sense of things, to kind of work through them. I know um, in my uh, collection auscultation that there's a section at the end about being a stepmother and, and certainly a lot of that was working through, you know, how I felt about that and um, things that went on at that time. It's interesting when I started writing poetry seriously on that Arvon course, I certainly went on the course with a bit of a sort of imposter syndrome thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not really a poet, I'm a vet, you know, I, you know, I, I don't feel that I belong because I haven't done a degree in English 
literature or, or, or you know, I haven't, uh, I didn't do English uh, A-level. I wasn't allowed to because I had to do the science A-levels because I, I, I knew I wanted to be a vet. So I always felt almost like I was a bit of an imposter or that, that I wasn't, uh, I wasn't equipped to be a poet because I hadn't studied it enough. And I think that was probably a scientific take on it. You know, if you, if you haven't studied it, you can't, you don't have a full understanding of it. So I think I spent a lot of the first perhaps five five or six years thinking, oh, you know, I don't know enough. I'm, uh, I can't possibly be a poet because I don't, you know, I haven't, I haven't studied all these things. But I think if you if you read and you and you more you write and the more you read the more familiar you become with things and going on writing workshops and and going along to poets meetings and poetry groups and taking your poems along to be critiqued I think is a really important part of the process and for for me that was essential and I belong to a couple of poetry groups in Cambridge who were fantastic and you know really helped with that evolution into being a poet. I remember being at one workshop and somebody said to me, oh, isn't it wonderful that you're a vet um, as well as a poet? And I thought, oh, OK, that's an interesting. I always felt a bit of an imposter. And uh, they said, oh, no, but you've got this other language, haven't you? And uh, I suddenly thought, oh, OK, yeah, that's that's true. I've got I've got another I've got a medical language. And those medical terms often find their way into my poems and so I then came to think of it oh actually that's it that could be an advantage really rather than you know a disadvantage I think vets are are very used to you know they we spend a lot of our time reading and writing clinical notes and there are observations of the patients and they're often factual but they're, they're they're also not always dry and clinical they're a record of what we've seen felt heard or smelt even when you're examining an animal and medical language is full of color and dimension and it's you know it's very particular but it's very strong and uh language as well and we are we observe our patients closely and we record what we feel about them and uh, the attention to detail is paramount and i think that's what we use in as poets as well don't we we use precise and descriptive language and I think a lot of vets are perfectionists and I think that's quite helpful (laughs) often being a poet because you go back over things and, you know, you really want to get it right. I think for that, for me, that was another important thing. Another thing that I loved about poetry was this kind of jigsaw or puzzle effect of putting the right pieces together and and making it work. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you know, as all poets do, the feeling that when you you know, you're searching for the right word or the right phrase and you can't get it. And then all of a sudden it comes and it clicks and you go, oh, yes, that's that's it. That's what I was trying to say. That's what I was trying to get. So, yeah, so I think I think far from being a disadvantage now, I actually feel that it has been an advantage having that language and having that clinical practice of observation and recording what I'm seeing and and hearing. And so I I think it has been, as I say, again, it's difficult to separate the two things I can't not be a vet <laughs> in the same way as I can't not be a poet anymore I suppose yeah. I went to Cambridge Vet School and then worked for 30 years in a practice in Saffron Walden yeah. and it started off as a mixed practice so farm animals and companion animals and then eventually became just uh, companion animals I actually retired from uh, that practice in 2020 and moved to Cumbria and now I just I'm I'm kind of semi-retired now so I just run a very part-time practice in complementary therapies for animals so I do acupuncture 
mm. herbs and homeopathy and advice on supplements and so on. So there's a lot of demand out there for not alternative, but, but different ways of looking at animal health. I mean, the idea of retiring from general practice and, and moving to a place we loved uh, would be to spend more time writing. And so I'm, I'm now able to write every day, which is, or most days anyway, which is, uh, which is brilliant. And Cumbria has got an amazing uh, poetry scene. You know, there's uh, Kim Moore and Polly Atkin and Katie Hale, who's just had a, her first collection published, White Ghosts, which is brilliant. Uh, Jennifer Copley. And there's a really strong poetry group of brewery poets in Kendall. There's the Dove Cottage Poets, of course, in Grasmere. And um, I'm actually helping to run that now, which is which is lovely. And it's such a nice group of people there. And uh, and then the other thing that was really important with moving to a new place was I'm also a Morris dancer. Uh, it was also important to check out what the local Morris dancing side was like. And uh, and thankfully, they are brilliant as well. Crook Morris are absolutely brilliant. I was lucky enough to win the Mislexia Poetry Pamphlet Competition in 2015. Mm-hmm. And Amy Wack was the editor at Seren at that time. And she I was lucky enough that she really liked my poems. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so I was the winner of that. And so Seren published The Dogs That Chase Bicycle Wheels uh, is my pamphlet. And then Seren published my first collection, Auscultation, mm-hmm. in 2021. And the book really is about, it's about, it's a collection of poems about my experiences as a veterinary surgeon on some of the animals and people and situations I've encountered in my career. But it also contains poems about my parents, death of my father, becoming a mother and a stepmother. And it, it and it, the recurring theme throughout the book really is listening, listening or being listened to or not being listened to. And so for me, auscultation is, is, is the medical term for listening to sounds of the body cavity, normally the heart, chest. And it just was so right that that should be the title. And now Elsa reads a selection of her poems. Yeah, I'll read. I can read you the the poem about the ruptured diaphragm. <laughs> I think that's a a good one to start with. So it's called Suturing Secrets, and as I say, it's about when I was operating on a, a dog and felt this huge privilege at being able to see this heart beating behind this sort of torn diaphragm, but also the slight revulsion that the muscle, because it's a muscle contracting in, in the end. So this is the poem that came out of that, that surgery. Suturing Secrets. We are divided into compartments separated by taut membranes, glistening planes of connective tissue resilient boundaries. Today this is damaged, anaesthetised, surgically explored. Your diaphragm is a torn curtain hanging, and like a peep show I am drawn to look behind. In the absence of pressure, lungs hesitate to inflate, do their best to conceal the frantic convulsions at your core, the struggle for rebirth every second. I look perhaps longer than I should at the shuddering flesh, the labouring beauty. Then I pull the curtain back over and suture the secret inside. Talking about the medical language, actually also in the pamphlet, there is a 
another poem called Breaking the Code, and that uses some of the the medical language that I learned, and also sort of touches on the difficulty of the veterinary course, and it's a very intense course. So it's called Breaking the Code. Polydipsia, polyphagia, means too often. We explored the sounds, our tongues speculating tentatively as we scribble down each new word, not meeting each other's eyes. Tachycardia, tachypnea, means too fast. Some started dropping the words into conversation. I watched the ripples spreading, but waited until I could be sure I could leave the surface like glass. Dysuria, dysgesia, means too hard. I had expected it to be easier. The poem that I often start a reading with is called Visit to the Vets. And I always say that being a vet has been a, a huge privilege and I feel very blessed to have that as a career. And I certainly haven't had those moments of, of hating. Well, I have had moments of hating being a vet, I suppose, but but not for the fact of the job, for the fact of things that have, have, have happened for, to animals or to people. But the consulting room is a privileged place, I think. All of life is there. You get to see the highs and the lows, you know, the lords and ladies. I've treated animals belonging to rock stars, and but I've also treated animals belonging to homeless people and bankrupt people and people with mental health issues, people that have just been recently bereaved. And so you see all of life and just seeing that and witnessing that makes you realise there is more to life uh, and it makes you uh, understand life more and you have to be able to help people in all sorts of situations. So, so yeah, this is the poem that, comes, that came out of that and it's called Visit to the Vets. I'm listening when I say, how are you today? I'm listening when I tilt my head just so. I'm listening when I say hello to Fluffy, Sooty or Rex. I'm listening when Rex pees up the door. I'm listening when you get a text and text back. I'm listening when you let your kids climb on the table. I'm listening when you answer your phone and say, I'm in the vets, I can't talk. I'm listening when you carry on talking. I'm listening when you say, I can't put my finger on what's wrong. I'm listening when you say, but I know he's just not right. I'm listening when you say you've looked it up on the internet. I'm listening when you say, are you sure? I'm listening when he growls and you say, don't worry, he won't bite you. I'm listening when he tries to bite me. I'm listening when you start telling me about your other dog. I'm listening when I've heard the same thing five times already. I'm listening when I plug my ears with the stethoscope. I'm listening when you say, your job must be so interesting. I'm listening when you say, you vets are all rip-off merchants. I'm listening when you snap at your partner. I'm listening when your kids go quiet and hold hands. I'm listening to the sound of your self-importance filling the room. I'm listening as your opinions start polishing their firearms. I'm listening to the emptiness of your wallet in the silence. I'm listening as your dead husband stands behind you, putting his overcoat around your shoulders. There's a couple of poems in the book about the 
difficult parts of being a vet. And one of those difficult parts is the euthanasia aspect of it. It it is a difficult thing to do and it's never taken lightly and it's a very emotional time for obviously the owner but also the also the vet. And it's one of those things that's also not taught particularly well at vet school. It certainly wasn't in my my day it wasn't taught at vet school I'm sure it probably is much taught much better now but you were just expected to do it and and get on with it and it's quite a, a huge thing to do that taking of a life is is a huge thing to do and you know you don't get to make people don't get to make that decision generally and uh, but as vets you do and it got me thinking about other professions where you kill for a living which is a a horrible thing to have to do but you know slaughtermen and, and hangmen and uh, you know other people that have to to do that thing and how do you cope with that so this is the this is the poem that came out of it and it's teach me to kill sit me down on a wooden bench and let me hear the scream of chalk on blackboard draw me diagrams and flowcharts Give me a slate and pencil in, and instruct me how to scratch them out. Give me homework, printouts and worksheets that I can strike through with my coloured pens. Indicate the important bits, the bits I'll be tested on at the end of term in the multiple choice question paper, along with my fellow students, the hangmen, the slaughtermen, the ones who draw up lethal injections, who strap people to gurneys, sit in the chair to test the restraints, the ones with the electric paddles or captive bolt, and the ones who hover in the doorway, who aren't officially here, who just turn up the drip, they won't be taking the exam. You won't find this course in any prospectus or other promotional material. It is advertised by word of mouth. Teach me to kill in the smallest lecture theatre with the unmarked door. Teach me the tricks of the trade, how to kill and then carry on. I think the, the, the poems that I'm writing now are still veterinary poems and they're still using the, the language of veterinary medicine. Uh, I don't think I'll ever um, you know, stop using that because it's sort of, you know, it's so embedded in me. The poems that I'm working on now are poems about the body, um, both animals' bodies and human bodies, how we change them, how things are changed without permissions, how we manipulate bodies, and how uh, how detrimental that is to, to some animals. One of the things that particularly bothers me, I think, uh, is how we've bred dogs into different shapes and how we've manipulated their bodies, often to the detriment of their health. And so, for example, short-faced dogs, you know, pugs and, and pickanese and bulldogs and become quite popular breeds. But as vets, we see a, a lot of the problems in that they can't breathe. You know, they just you literally can't breathe properly. And uh, dachshunds with very, very long backs, for example, and they often have slip discs because their backs are so long and there's so much pressure. And there's lots of other examples of where we've bred these traits into animals that that have become health concerns for them and there's a lot of talk now about how we can reverse that breeding process and there's a lot of work being done with the kennel club trying to to change some of the they're called breed standards so every breed has a breed standard that's written down 
by the kennel club and I think people have become overzealous with trying to adhere to those breed standards so they say long back and they've made them longer and longer and longer for example so I think the kennel club is doing quite a lot of work to try and reverse these changes but it is a is a problem and and those are some of the things that are concerning me now so I can read you one of the newer poems that I've got about that and this is about this issue of, of dog breeding and it's called is there still something wolf a wolf crests the dusk of the horizon regards the valley below throws back its silver furred head opens its throat hurls a howl into the cavity of the sky listen bedrooms kitchens kennels sofas ears twitch dna pricked by faint griefs of memory is there still something wolf in your beating hearts, your wolf eyes, your wolf stomachs? You lift a sightless blue eye, suck in air through pinched nostrils, pull oxygen through narrowed windpipes. Struggle to rise on your two short legs, twisting your two long backs, figure it's not worth the effort. Settle. Oh, look, he's dreaming. Dream on, man's best. You abased yourself at our fires. We gave you food, shelter, and so much more as your reward. Only right we extract our fee from your genealogy. Make you various. Make you diverse. Blueprint you. Head relatively large in proportion to body. Skull nearly flat between ears, domed forehead. Lower jaw deep, square, broad, slightly undershot and turned up. Pricked ears, highly undesirable. Loose skin, frowning expression, harsh, bristly coat. Tail short, rolled, curled, or stumpy from birth. The wolf lowers its head, turns, walks silently back into the forest. What did you expect? Come, slip on a tutu, paint your nails, dance for us. Thank you, Ilsa. You'll find more about Ilsa and details of her publications on poetryworthhearing.biz where you can also see information about the other poets as well as texts of previously unpublished poems. Our first poet, Sarah J. Bryson, has also written about a career which could be described as vocational. These poems come from a sequence about her training as a nurse. Early shift, winter. Flakes like goose down float without purpose through the glow of the sulphur street light over the garden wall as you unlock the shed to disentangle your blue rally bike from the others. You're bundled up in your coat with a thick scarf and gloves ready for the descent of Headington Hill, through town to the infirmary. The cold stings your face, the dynamo whirs as it rubs on the rim, gives out a flicker to show how the snow settles a layer of white over the black tarmac. You control the freewheel, gently braking, your mind focused on not slipping, on getting there in one piece, the thought of cycling back at the end of the shift uphill all the way, already weighing on your mind. 
observation rounds. Post-op obs, quarter hourly, reducing to half, then hourly, done routinely, depending on the surgery, using manual sphigs and communal stethoscopes, mercury thermometers popped under the tongue, pulses palpated for 15 seconds, eyeing the fob watch, quick in the head, four times calculations, all noted on charts, clipboarded at the foot of the bed, respirations unless alerted by wheeze, strider or cough, often ignored or guessed. One round finished, time to start the next. Not just the obs, nurse, it's not enough. Check the wound, make sure you look at the actual patient. General student on psych placement. This elderly, emaciated man was so weak and bony thin, wanted to stay in bed if he could. Alcoholic, they said, with a chronic wound. One for you, perhaps, as you know something about leg ulcerations. We had convoluted discussions, confabulations, they said. He had a recipe for Campbell's soup and poached egg, which he claimed makes a decent lunch with good cheese in times of need. I did try it just once. He told anecdotes about acting with Olivier and Dench, gave his thoughts on the correct cooking of potatoes and the importance of poetry. After negotiations of timing and his need for pain relief, he'd let me rebandage his leg while he quoted his favourites. I had Wordsworth and R.S. Thomas and swathes of Shakespeare, a little of the Shropshire lad. The charge nurse commented one day, after I'd been away, that no one else had been permitted to do this dressing. That morning I went to his room and he complained his leg had been left too long and stenched of flowering ivy, was leaking green through the padding. No negotiations needed that day. Afterwards he said he had something for me, a little gift. I told him I'm not supposed to accept it. It's against the rules. He told me it's not worth much. I checked with the staff nurse. Take it, she said with a shrug, if it makes him happy. It was a small green hardback, the golden treasury, with the dedication to she who dressed my wound with thanks, taped in the front with his card. The cellar tape's gone stiff and yellow now, after more than 40 years. Acceptance. When I arrive, his wife says, I know he's dying. It's been coming to this for a while, but now he has reached the reality of it, a changed man who is diminished in size, whose bones push at the skin, who rambles a little when he wakes, then asks for a drink but can't manage to sip, who plucks at the sheets, doesn't like the light, whose breath is more erratic. His wife is trying to stay strong, holding things together, and the daughter is taught, walking a tightrope, fearing the fall, not knowing what will happen next, what to do, how long this may go on, the wanting it over quickly, mixed with the wrench of not being ready. Later, when he's more settled and dusk seeps in, his wife asks me to call her Mary and her daughter Sue, she puts on the bedside lamp and Beethoven. He knows what's coming, they tell me. 
He wants a cremation, not burial. He's updated his will. They show photographs of his life, tell how, in his day, he used to coach the rugby and rowing. His pride in this, their pride shows in the telling. There are tears and laughter. A pause. Sue asks about the undertaker, wants to know if they can leave his wedding band on his ring finger when he goes to the creme, so that it can stay forever with him. And next, still in the field of medicine, this elegiac poem for his daughter by Stephen Wren. This is a poem written about my daughter's training as a junior doctor. Husks at dusk. I am thinking off the back of your head. I am thinking of the gold in your hair. I hold these coatings of seeds in my hands. I am thinking of the skill in your hands. I am thinking of the mind that made you. I watch the fading light paint walls at dusk. I am thinking of the job of your dreams. I am thinking of the speed of your mind. I search for what is hiding inside seeds. I am thinking of the work you have done. I am thinking of the calm in your voice. I know that pennies can drop when it's still. I am thinking of the sick you made well. I am thinking of your life that was work. I get to the kernel of what matters. I am thinking of the gold of your soul. I am thinking of the pride in my heart. I thank God that I am your dad this night. Alan Buckley works as a psychotherapist. These poems come from his book, Touched, which was published in 2020. This first poem is called Things Can Only Get Better, which is the title of a song by the band D-Ream, which was used by the Labour Party during their campaigning in the 1997 election that took them to a landslide victory. And at that time, I was working uh, in a therapeutic community, a kind of halfway house for people coming out of psychiatric hospital. And yeah, it was about four years into my career in mental health work. Things can only get better. Though the buildings long since demolished, the land redeveloped. Let's pretend we can walk back through the yellow dining room into the garden, each of us carrying a mug of sweet tea. You with your spa own brand Super Kings, me with my tin of golden Virginia. We sit cross-legged on the grass, t-shirt weather, we're in the pink cloud of New Labour's honeymoon, the memories fresh, that song blaring out at a fist-pumping rally, that winsome, winning smile. A new dawn has broken outside number 10. And now those images flooding our TV screens, a dead princess in an underpass, Kensington Palace adrift on a sea of flowers. 
a country at ease with showing its tears, the old ways losing their hold. We draw on our cigarettes and exhale, hazing the late summer air. It seems like nothing lies out of reach. We talk about ordinary stuff, what you might go on to do one day. Study, get a job, even have your own family. Lieben und Erbeiten, das ist alles. And who cares if Freud never actually said this? Ordinary stuff, as if the years to come were blank pages in a journal that we might fill however we wanted. As if the hand has no compulsion to write what it's written before. This second poem, Moonlight, also dates from my time working in residential mental health in the mid to late 1990s. Uh, and obviously, there are many experiences I had, I've had during my career uh, in mental health and as a therapist that at one level I would love to write about, but I am at the same time obviously constrained by the need to protect the identities of the people I've worked with, which is something that this poem talks about. Moonlight. Although I've invited you here to join me in this poem's little room, I can't speak your name. I'm bound as tightly as a priest who draws the curtain aside and steps out onto the cool stone floor. So I must clip my tongue and do no more than point towards the absent care and many hurts, the desolate unhealth they left you with. Instead, I'll speak the heart of you, held in a single photograph. You just turned 19. On house holiday, staff and residents together. Front seat of the minibus, dark green anorak over gym jams, cigarette tucked between your fingers, fringe flicked clear of your eyes. And yes, that waxing crescent moon of a smile, full of promise. Give me another chance, it beamed, and always I succumbed, being merely human. Now, four poems from Pat Winslow. Three relate to her experience of working in prisons, where the relationship with the institution is perhaps more problematic. The fourth reflects her work as a humanist celebrant. Strangeness in Reverse Of all the things I'm warned about, this one sticks. We never let anyone walk out alone. It's the keys. So I'm expecting strangeness to happen in reverse. My first week, the weight of an iron gate, the swing of it, the clang when I let it go too hard against the frame, how four inches of thick brass warms up in the palm, the silver chain that's never still, the whistle. But no, handing over the keys is easy. Even the goodbyes, 
The suddenness of tears is comforting, the clasp of hands and, on occasion, arms. So, not the parting. And I've long ago lost the ability to be shocked by birds flying over the perimeter fence. I shred many things, not least the Official Secrets Act, and feel lighter for that. No one knows the itch of a secret that lies beneath the skin, how it burns to break free. Unexpectedly, it's the ID tag I hoped to keep. They take it away from me, my face shining out as it was six and a half years ago. I am not that person. The realisation bites and begins to deepen. I walk out more alone than I ever imagined. Prison scars anyone, I think. It certainly scars a prisoner, but I think also people who work in prisons are damaged in some way by it. It's a very brutal system. This next poem I wrote for Talha Asan, who was uh, sentenced. Well, he, he wasn't actually sentenced. He was imprisoned without trial for six years in the prison where, where I was working at the time as a writer in residence. And then he was extradited under Theresa May's government to the United States and put into solitary confinement. All this without a trial. And this is a poem for Talha. And uh, it also honours his brother who mounted a phenomenal campaign to get him released and come back to England. I, I am pleased to say that he is now living in the UK and working as a poet and translator. Beyond Frame. The prisoner steps into the painting his brother made for him. He knows there's no going back, that he must learn to swim through colour, Trust, negative space, seek a vanishing line. In time, he may decide that the cell he's leaving behind is a cube, and cubes can be undone and spread out, made flat like a net diagram. Walking in blue and orange, he'll find that parallel lines often meet, that sound travels best by pen and ink. Nothing is more profound than the silence of green, he'll think. And though he might not see his brother, he will on occasion hear him sing. He'll recognise the familiar scent of his skin, which is not unlike his own. Today, stepping out into the light, he is stripped clean. He is his brother's breath without weight. Nothing can detain him. He is beyond the margins of time, beyond anything that suggests containment, beyond frame. And one more poem that I wrote whilst I was working in a high security prison. It's Notes from a Prison Chapel. Sometimes when I'm waiting, the silence reminds me of when I was 13. Sunlight, holy water and incense, a dozen veils in a cardboard box, a candle flame in a small red glass. Pray that the light doesn't go out. It would mean the end of everything. 
I prayed, but it never did. I talked and ate sweets. I laughed at damnation. Endless flames were hard to imagine. Outside is a group of prisoners who can walk on water. The lino shines brilliantly in these corridors. They're grinning, tripping over laces. They could be kids, but for their voices. Football fans then, sons with their dads, out for a pint before the match starts. A group of workmates, a gang of lads. How many? Numbers are important in this home office establishment. Say, twelve. You won't easily forget good men and true. Steps to recovery, the keys on a phone, bars on a gate. Noon and midnight, stamps for your letters, the days of Christmas, the months, the years. And finally, a poem about um, another job I do. Um, I'm, no, I'm no longer working in a, in a prison, but um, as a writer in residence. But I, I work as a humanist celebrant, so I do funerals, weddings and baby namings. And this poem is Grief's Beasts, which is kind of how I interpret grief, how, I, how I've experienced grief, how it feels to me. Grief's Beasts. Such faithfulness and loyalty in these barrel-bodied burrowers that come snouting for a place to rest. They're solid as armadillos and snuggly as bears. We feed them. We adjust their limbs to ease their sleep. We'll harbour a colony in our lifetime. We'll get used to their hammocked weight as they settle to a ballast. Why deny them now? Isn't love always a kind of grief? From prison to education. Here is a poem by Meryn Williams. First job. When the Open University opened, people said it could never work and was a mad idea. There were only two real universities anyhow. It was my first job and I was terrified. I got there, knowing no one. A field of mud surrounded lovely waterfall, the ancient church and cedars, not far off, emerged a new city, Milton Keynes. There was much that I had to learn fast. Then there was summer school, teaching the great English and Russian novels to students all older than myself. I stayed awake and heard them celebrating through the small hours. I agonised at the thought of public speaking. I didn't know how vast it would become, but I'm grateful for all the interesting people I met, the skills that I discovered, thankful above all that the Open University taught me to write so as to be understood. The next two poems could be said to be about creative work or the arts, so linked to poetry itself. First, Dinah Livingstone with a poem about working as a translator. Likeness in difference. In Regent's Park, I hear the roar from the football field. In whatever language, the roaring sounds the same. Round St. Martin's Gardens, a mother walks with her two little ones, speaking a language I don't know. Could it be Bulgarian? 
But I do understand what she means when she calls one back who's gone too far or picks up the other who falls and comforts him just as a mother in English would call and console. Translating that German book was difficult. Huge compound words, interminable sentences whose clauses in unfamiliar order interwove. Verbatim it would sound ridiculous to us. I laboured to sort it out, untangle it like garden wire or wool with a will of its own. Sometimes I needed at least three new full stops. A few days later, rereading what I'd done, I was surprised the English sounded ordinary, a normal procedure, which is the same and not the same. Yet actually, I'm glad German is so German and French so French that each language is so much itself, but using it is the same activity. As Wordsworth says, there is a peculiar pleasure from likeness in dissimilitude. In my garden, I enjoy Herb Robert, Periwinkle, Philadelphus, Fuchsia, Rose, all flowering, Goldfinch, Blue Tit, Great Tit, Robin Wren, come to my balcony, all being birds. Just ordinary living can be difficult. But here we are, doing our best in London's 300 languages. In imagination, that translates into the city achieved and splendid, where Pancras and Kentish Town repose, the hungry are fed, distressed are comforted, all different kinds of humanity thrive, each enjoying, enriching each other, and all share the common good. And now, on theatre, Roddy Maud Roxby. When the mask works, to wait in line with eyes closed to receive a mask. These are full masks with painted eyes. They do not speak. We see out through slits how our first deep breath is theirs. We have disappeared. They are in play. They are other than us. When our emotions rise, they show in our bodies. The mask face seems to alter. When the mask pulls on a rope, what a change of expression. The masks touch their stomachs and hold out a hand. They are begging, said the Queen. The half-mask comes to the lip. They are the ones who speak. A girl aged nine in such a mask became a dancing dervish, shouting, until mask off, she tells us, I am the last person to do all that. I am a shy one. But now, if you give yourself permission, oh yes, and she leaps towards the audience. And now, to the office. David Burridge, 
gives us the trials of a negotiator. A done deal. The table, a theatre thumps on a stretch of pine, picketed with flask and cups. No man's land between ranting arms and finger taps. Down in the basement of knees, secret notes are passed. Derisory offer almost chair scrapes an end. Principles aired, realities faced, everyone agrees, better than a poke in the eye. Delegates assigned to storm out, crutch back again. A stubbing of fags signals closure, exhaled smog, hacks, coughs, quells, tempers, a grip of agreements threatened with terror, now briefcased for another year. Words pen for a quick show of hands, then backslaps and see assumes the room empties grin after grin until just the table bare-faced remains. Work-life balance. I've got to get the rhythm right of fun and friends and sleep at night. Not too much to drain my spirit. That will never do now, will it? Feeling tense? Get to that gym. Unravel muscles, nerve and skin. The business lost, well, don't be bitter. At least you're feeling somewhat fitter. Yoga on the office floor. Nirvana reached by half past four. Who cares if sales are down? At least your karma's safe and sound. Work-life balance really sets a challenge. I've got to get the rhyming right, even if it takes all night. Office space. Once we all strove to be promoted in the private offices, working spaces in which we could build our authority. Entry always took a polite knock, then permission shouted. Opinions swapped, confidentiality kept. We thrived in our closed-door meetings. Then open plan became the new ideology. Everything to be done, sharing giggles and shouts, it's teamwork, they claimed, and, make, and made cost-saving sense. We were all regarded as equal ins and outs. As we bent our heads to tap in our thoughts, we always wondered who was leaning, leaning over us. A single single room was used for hard discussions. Those who slipped in then stormed out the street door. Now office space is emptying and laptops carried home. Workrooms are a zoom of bookshelves and swollen heads. Stay or leave just a finger click. Employees' ideas are systems infected, shouted and snarled across the world. Face to face is now a deep fake. Real shared space is out of date. Now, Jane Thomas with a sorry tale. I used to work in advertising agencies in London when I was younger. It was an industry full of jargon and sometimes debauchery. This is a poem based on some of those experiences. Tom's affair with the famous ad man. He was older than him, a few decades maybe. Famous. He'd invented snap, crackle and pop. He had a light-panelled party house in Hampstead. Wife and kids were out to graze in the chippings. He knew his way round the clubs, knew the owners from Kings and the young geishas too. 
He wasn't as healthy or slim as he used to be. Something to do with skiing in his left knee. Tom knew it was over when he went from Mac to B2B. Realised the lines weren't new and that he had no USP. A USP is a unique selling point and B2B is business-to-business marketing, which is seen as the lowest rung of marketing that you can do, whereas Mac is a high-profile makeup brand that a lot of people would like to work on. Who knew? Next, Helen Overall. London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. TUC Centenary Occupational Health Department. She works late, has the office to herself, puts the finishing touches to the article, tidies her desk, trundles along the corridor. Electric hum of wheelchair, squeak of tyres, reaches the stairwell where the antiquated lift wheezes behind the clang of metal grill doors. The daytime hubbub, flat-capped vowels, polished consonants, accents the world over, giving way to the rattle of galvanised buckets, swish of mops over well-trodden floors, good-natured banter, one woman to another, in lilt of down-to-earth, workaday crayon, the whole building resonant with words, talk as near to song as any she has heard. Deaf Services Team Meeting One person only speaks or signs at any time. Everyone can see each other, no one in shadow. The interpreter keeps pace, dance of hands, clear speech. Portmanteau gestures carry whole phrases, names spelled out. Lip-shape geometry deciphered, meaning shared. Faces scanned for puzzled frowns, for matters understood. Rumbled peal of thunder startles hearing colleagues. The deaf, bemused, ask a tumbled flurry of questions. The team leader, eyebrows raised, shapes air into what? Stamps his foot to call order, calm returns in moments. Someone points upwards, right-handed, draws a downward series of zigzags as though lightning strike. Thunderstorm. Minuted in shorthand, with tick list for fire drill, best practice minicom procedures, to be typed up. Meg Barton describes the joys of commuting. Journey to work. I'll not miss going to work, the jar of the alarm and the ten more minutes and the oh God it's a quarter past and the shower half asleep and the kettle on and the quick make your lunch which is never enough and the five more minutes and the flinging out the door in all weathers all weathers 
and my own steady feet on the street and my bag hitched over my shoulder and the root that is always the root and the queue which is always the queue and the seat which is mine now and the mist on the window and the thinking of nothing and the wanting to think of nothing knowing you'll have to start thinking come nine and the stop which is always the stop and the ten more minutes walking next to the carriageway and the hedges sometimes in bloom and the dash to the loo and the wash your hands slowly trying not to look older in the mirror and five more minutes climbing the stairs and the resistant swing door and the stale office air and the how long to go till it's time to go home. Philip Polakoff keeps us in the office with his first poem, but in the second we are out and about with his grandfather. Poem for Emily on leaving Mary Curie to join Dog's Trust. No return for ours to those times of mirth about the summer centurions in a legion, funnier in situ, and the answer's sixty. I know, so unexpected. I saw this painting, the only blonde in the world, thought of you, the only Emily in the office, but that's not true. I know there are twenty-five more, all impostors I checked in Outlook. Your leaving proves that life is so compellingly unfair, even if it's unfair for everyone, it is too unfairly so. Joining Dogs Trust half rhymes with keep in touch, all our exchanges over these years, in corridors and office kitchens, the odd pint ticking over in the rows on Mother Kelly's, and those flat-screen exec parades where I'd seek your approval for whatever I was saying, hardly amount to a weekend. What more is there to attraction, though, than finding the same things funny? Well, plenty. Even so, shared humour is a rare jewel. Yes, I'm comparing you to a rare jewel. What's the point of travelling to the office without people like you there? Without you there? Burning the world for others. Great Uncle Philip, you, a Russian Jew, selling matches door to door in 1908 around Bangor until the people saw themselves in you and let you prosper. Though door to door means punched and spat in sun and rain, a slap and slam lost in a gale for each doorway may bring Women ragged in leather clogs, a chatty fellow, an angry man, an insult, a push or a sale. You don't accept, if invited in, in case accused of theft, each small movement of your limbs, each step and chill and turn away, and each pitch lets you place food on the table for Amelia, Izzy and Israel. Have a Sabbath lights would have shone. And now work that is hands-on and out and about with Carl Tomlinson. Illuminated HSBC Signs, Canary Wharf. From the ground their towering times New Roman could pass for 14 point. 
but glimpsed from the Airbus this evening, they glare their monolith scale. They arrived at the factory in sections. Each part was a four-man lift. I'm 6'3", and could walk through the H without it parting my hair. We painted the inner faces white to intensify the light and sent them round the track again to spray the outsides black. And you might think that this far up nobody cares or knows if the line where the colours meet runs true or kinks a bit here and there. Not so. Chris spent hours cutting paper shrouds to just the right shape and fixing them with masking tape so the black did not seep through. Dwarfing bankers bent over screens, they advertise none of this making. Yet something of all that careful work shines back at me tonight. And finally, Sarah Watkinson in a meditative poem about human work and earth work. A song of thermodynamics. Blanched cords of couch grass tangle on the fork. Tread moulded casts of earth mess up the floor. Does order or disorder come from work? New sunbeams pick out cobwebs in each nook. The smallest must know what their toil is for. Blanched cords of couch grass tangle on my fork. What's entropy to spiders in the murk? For wood mice in the wainscot, what's a law? Does their or my disorder come from work? What's buried isn't dead, that's just our talk. Worms know that our remains are what life's for, and spongy touchwood crawls upon the fork. Earth loves decay, its microbes feed on muck, foul bags of bird shit, vegetable hair. Does order or disorder come from work? Roots live on captured sunshine in the dark. Wake up, smell the geosmin, petrichor. Fat couch grass rhizomes come up on my fork. My order, their disorder, human work. And that's it for this episode. More information on poems and poets is available on poetryworthhearing.biz. I hope you've enjoyed listening.